Hello and welcome to the third episode of Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, I'm Emma London. And I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And today we're talking about women and work. So this is the first of a kind of a two-parter episode on women and big questions about work and labour, I guess. Yeah, who does it? Why? How is it rewarded? <laughs> All of the very big questions. So where do we start, really? Well, I mean, what's shall we talk about our own work yeah what I'm, work do you do I think we've both so you know as we've kind of said on previous podcasts we're both academics um I work for a university so I have a full-time permanent job I am a teacher a lecturer a researcher I do a lot of admin as well um and then academic work has quite a lot of extra elements to it that aren't really paid but are expected so things like um reviewing books for journals or in fact I'm the book review editor for a journal going to seminars giving seminar papers that sort of thing as well um and then I do lots of other I do lots of bits of writing and I suppose this podcast is sort of work yes definitely um so I'm you know also an academic but I'm far less tenured (laughs) I don't have a permanent job I have a uh, (laughs) semi-contracted job at Queen Mary where I have a um, I don't know even what it's called it's teaching fellowship I think we're teaching associates Mm -hmm. is that what we are um, so it's very much the most junior job you can have in, while being an academic. Um, have It's unusual for people to have them for a long time after, you know, they've finished their PhDs. But I've had maternity leave and things in between. So I really like it. It's I basically teach on other people's courses, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun. And you get exposed to a lot of things that you might not necessarily have taught yourself or um, introductions to subjects that you might not be too familiar with yourself. It's great. Last year I talked about eugenics, um, which was hilarious (laughs) and deeply upsetting uh, and something that I probably would like to teach again, but might not. Mm. But yeah, apart from that, I do um, journalism, which used to be my day job. I was a full-time employed journalist Mm -hmm. once upon a time. but again that's also something that isn't maybe always remunerated Mm -hmm. for a lot of people so yes have you had other jobs did you I I mean I was a waitress and a barmaid I was a much better barmaid than I was a waitress oh it was the opposite for me I was a much better waitress than a barmaid I know I'm very clumsy um, <laughs> I'm very clumsy and uh, I'm much better at pulling pints than I am at doing silver service. I used to do very fancy oh, waitressing. Yeah, no, um, I've never really done silver service. Uh, I suppose the barmaid, um, I was more of a bartender than a barmaid though, so we had to make fancy cocktails at mm. a time when I didn't really drink very much. So I didn't really know, you know, off heart what a margarita would mm-hmm. have in it. And so and it was just... It, you know the mind work that goes into learning drinks yeah. that you would never drink and then making 20 of them in a night is a bit see i yeah i was i mean barmaid is the wrong word i i was a bartender as well after all because we don't need to use gender words for these jobs anymore yeah, no, but true. actually the sort of pub i worked in ten, i tended definitely to be a barmaid it oh, was okay. absolutely clear that i was a barmaid and i was a temp in lots of different places i i used to work in 
I had a brief stint where I did a lot of temping in a lot of different hedge funds in London, which coincided with the 2008 financial crash. So that was quite a weird time to be in and out of a lot of hedge funds. Um, Great. I'm saying great with like a frown. (laughs) (laughs) I was reminded of it the other day because I was walking through the city of London and I remembered that there was basically a year of my life where I wore three inch heels to work every day. Wow. Which is not something I've done since I was about 22. No. And I can't imagine doing it now. No. I was quite lucky in getting paid to do journalism very quickly after graduating with my BA. I worked at the BBC and I worked... And I then had a full-time permanent job at Conanus Publications for mm. five or six years, maybe, um, which is quite rare. And I continued to freelance as well, mm. so I was never really oh, out, I sold of, out of options. I Ooh. sold advertising for a newspaper for a year. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> I sold advertising for uh, for a series of magazines as well. I really loved working as a waitress, and I'm really um, I sometimes get quite nostalgic and wish that I could do it again. And a few years ago when I was still struggling quite a lot with the kind of handling finances around the PhD and stuff and I had funding so I mm-hmm. actually got paid to do a PhD which is very rare but mm-hmm. um, it, it's still never quite enough particularly yeah. when you live in London and when you research Sweden and South Africa and you of need course. to go and spend time there um, and I was thinking about getting back into waitressing because I actually really like it it's you know it's a fun job it's it's it keeps you very busy in your head and it's quite it's nice it can be incredibly challenging and I think we're going to get to the harassment part of women's work lives at some point in this podcast so um I might save some stories for that but it's yeah Yeah, I I, I sort of miss it I also sold books which was great Mm. which was much more enjoyable really because I got to sit down in this small bookshop by London Bridge uh, on weekends and a bit of times of the year I, I worked outside of the weekends too mm-hmm. and just learned that I cannot learn people's surnames mm-hmm. so I always remembered who had written a book by the first name which is ridiculous when you work in a bookshop because you're like yes his name is James but I have no idea where you find him on our shelves I only ever know books by the colour Ah. <laughs> I, I know entirely what books look like I, I, I only judge books by their cover I can't remember anything about authors <laughs> and this has been really bad in academia as well because I find it really really hard to refer to historians to famous theories or to famous books because I can't actually remember who wrote anything or the names of any books I can just remember vaguely what they look like mm. um, now I tempt throughout my PhD I had funding for my PhD as well which again is quite unusual but it wasn't especially generous funding um, and I didn't have any other money. I didn't have any kind of financial support from my family or anything like that. So I um, I attempt all the way through that as well. Um, I did enjoy being a bar... Well, I don't know if I enjoyed being a barmaid, really. It's a different sort of work to academic work. Um, I saw... I think it was today, the author Rainbow Rowell, who, who writes kind of young adult fiction and, and um, also adult books as well, tweeted something about um, mothers do not let your children grow up to have a job where you just have to sit and think on your own Mm. where that's your work and actually you know being a barmaid or a waitress is the exact opposite Mm. and I think sometimes that's why as an academic sometimes I get I do get a bit nostalgic for like working with other people in easily completable tasks and without you know with an end point and and a clocking off time and this sort of thing which is I think you know we obviously we both kind of work in academia 
now and academia as a workplace is a kind of funny environment sometimes um because it isn't primarily because it doesn't tend to be a nine-to-five job or it's certainly not a nine-to-five in the office job Mm. um you have a lot of independence um you manage your own time a lot you know I teach nine hours a week that's my timetable teaching and that's not unusual for a Russell group university that that's about what you would teach Mm. so I spend but I work probably 40 to 50 hours a week Mm. so a lot of that is is me kind of managing that which has its own particular challenges I think one of the most common themes when you start talking about work with other academics is the fact that people work so much Mm -hmm. and that it's um, the culture is kind of approving of all of the extracurricular stuff that yeah. you need to do in order to further your career. So it, there isn't quite enough time to do all of these things you need to do to get on the next step of the ladder. But you somehow have to find the time to do it. There's also a cult of busyness as well, which I think comes from, in some people, a kind of anxiety that because a lot of our work is not specifically timetabled and because you're managing your own time and because some of your work might be sitting and reading a book, so Mm. it doesn't necessarily look like work to other people, academics do have a tendency to constantly reiterate how busy they are and how Mm. much they have to do and to constantly, I think, often to to talk about how many hours they're working in a really unhealthy way. Mm. Um, and you'll hear people say things like, oh, academia is basically a vocation. It's not. It's a job. Um, or you'll hear them so- sort of saying, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter if you work at the weekends because they, academics love their job so much that it doesn't count as work. And this was a, you know, there's been big debates on Twitter about this recently, mm. about this idea that we all work long hours because we love our work so much and it's hard for us to differentiate between work and play. And that makes me feel like a terrible historian because I find it extremely easy to differentiate between my work as a historian and my my uh, free time. Yeah, no, it's true. I, and I, I sort of agree as well that it puts a lot of pressure on people um, to be seen to act the right way and to mm-hmm. be seen to work the right way. And I think particularly at the younger end of the scale, and by younger I mean maybe in terms of experience in the job rather yes. than age. earlier career. Early career. Um there is this assumption that unless you work all the time, mm-hmm. you're not gonna look good when applying for jobs. And I, I, maybe I'm just a little bit too old, but I just don't really see how it's at all relevant. I think it's... Um, there are so many, so many issues, so many things that can stop a person from being that productive. But maybe mm-hmm. also one of the main things is that you're not going to be more productive the more you work. Mm-hmm. So I was looking up all of this OCD, OECD (laughs) (laughs) statistics about um, Britain and work. Because people are always going to say that the British people work the longest hours in Europe and stuff like that. It's actually not true, apparently. Um, British people work, let me see, 32.2 hours a week. Wow. Which isn't... Which sounds, I mean, is that including people who are kind of part-time as well? I presume so. I presume it's... it's, pulling down the average. Yeah, it's, I'm guessing it's a population, working Mm -hmm. age population, because they will have to take into account unemployed people as well, I'm thinking. Um, But um, the OECD hours, the countries that work the most hours are Mexico, Costa Mm -hmm. Rica, Mm -hmm. South Korea, Greece, Chile, Russia, Poland... Um, Sweden, which I'm, you know, I'm Swedish, so it's relevant to me, comes in at um, 
number 30, the UK at 26. That's so it's not, no, it's, it's not, not much. what you would assume. But um, Germany is at number 38. Mm hmm. Whereas when you flip the scale around and you look at the country that's most productive yeah. per GDP, um, cop, GDP per capita, you all of a sudden Ireland is top, mm. which that's is interesting. quite interesting. And then it's Latvia, Poland, Slovakia, Lithuania, Australia. Um, Sweden comes in at number 11. Germany mm. is 12. Wow. Britain, 27. See, that's all of these underemployed people. That's why, I, you know, people, we're not productive because so many people are on zero-hour contracts. And yeah. Things, I would imagine. And that's what also what pulls our working hours down to 32. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I think, I mean, in Britain, there's always been this obsession. You know, I teach um, 1960s British history at the moment. That's one of the second-year courses that I'm teaching is 1960s British history. And there's this real anxiety in the 60s about decline in Britain. Mm. Um, economic decline, but also I think a kind of emotional sense of Britain declining as a nation, you know, Britain's losing its empire. And But one of the things that really sparks this is anxiety about economic competitiveness. And the uh, the two countries which are always cited as being more competitive than Britain in the, in the 60s are Japan and Germany. Mm. And obviously the anxiety there is that these two countries lost the war. Mm. And that Britain won the war but loses the peace. And then France always comes up in Britain. Uh, because we have this assumption that French people clock off early and have long lunches um, and strike a lot. Mm. Um, and actually, the first time I went to a conference in Paris, we did have a three-course lunch with wine <laughs> in the middle of the conference, which I was not prepared for. No. I was very happy that I'd done my paper before. British academics are used to sort of dry sandwiches. And... Terrible dry sandwiches. Unless, of course, you're at Oxford and Cambridge, in which case all bets are off, I think. Okay. Um, but yes, I was. I mean, I mean, I was very happily surprised by the three-course lunch and wine. But it's interesting. I think as well, we we kind of, you know, we're thinking about gender in the workplace and how this fits into these working hours. Um, mm. And obviously, part of this desire to to demonstrate um, that you work all the hours that you're given and that you work more and that you devote yourself to your work. I think. You know, part of this is about denying the existence of family life or the importance of family life, about kind of becoming very career-focused. Mm. And this obviously has ramifications for all sorts of people, but might have particular ramifications for women. And it's it has ramifications for women regardless of whether you actually have kids or not. Yeah. I mean, there is this very persistent gender gap mm -hmm. in pay, yeah. in... Uh, elevation to higher senior positions um, in academia, but also elsewhere. I mean, we can see in politics, for instance, which we yeah. talked about last time. But there's a real assumption and a kind of pattern that I think recruiters often fall into, which mm -hmm. is that they expect women to behave in a certain way and to yeah. have certain interests, absolutely, regardless we do or not. Um, and also that women are always going to be the primary carer for their kids. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, in Britain until very recently was systemised mm. because only women had the option of taking time off to look after... I mean, obviously, this is now shifting because you can share maternity and paternity leave now. Yes, it's legally shifting, but I'm not actually... Oh, no, not culturally. The only, the only no. men I know who have taken paternity leave longer than the, the, the two weeks at the start are... Um, men in Britain who have kids with Swedish partners. 
And I think Swedish women, because uh, shared parental leave has been a thing in Sweden since 1974, mm-hmm. we have a bit of a different assumption about what we do and what Whereas, men do. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think maybe we put a bit more pressure on our partners to uh, act accordingly. Yeah. Um, Whereas maternity leave in Britain was only legally mandated in 1999. 1999 yeah. is the moment at which employers stop being able to make you redundant just because you've got pregnant, which yeah. my students were always horrified to find out. Mm. Um, we've got Harriet Harman to thank for that. We have don't got we? Harriet Harman to thank for that. I thank think we you, have Harriet, Harriet Harman to thank for a lot of feminist uh, advances. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, and you do, you know, it's still very pervasive in Britain, I think, the sense that if you get to, if you hire women of a certain age, then you're going to expect them to go on maternity leave, or there's an assumption that that will happen. There was an article in the American Sociological Review recently that said that um, women in academia, that, that there was an assumption by hiring panels that women in academia were not movable, yeah. um, or that rather their husbands weren't movable whereas wives were. So women wouldn't be offered jobs if they had husbands at other institutions because the assumption was that they wouldn't be able to move anyway. Even yeah. if they had applied for the job and gone for an interview, which you would you would think would sort of indicate that they might be willing to take the job. But yeah. This is an article by Lauren uh, Rivera, yes. who's at Northwestern. And I, I read it too, and I thought it was really interesting. She's using... So she's a sociologist. Mm-hmm. So she's interviewed lots of people. And there were so many anecdotes mm. or like quotes from people's experiences mm. that just really ring so familiar like people saying oh I can't really ask this mm-hmm. or they're asking something and then they say oh I'm not allowed to say that am I yeah and it's in my experience it's quite often that people are kind of praising me for having been able to do the stuff I've been able to do uh whilst pregnant or having a baby or you know having a child Mm -hmm. but it's still the sort of assumption that that somehow I don't know I I also feel like the celebration of motherhood in the workplace in that Mm -hmm. way is is uh not as neutral and positive as it may might seem to people saying it I mean I appreciate that someone who had a child in the 60s in the workplace and you know with the lack of support around that at that time mm-hmm. might think that it's you know it's a good thing to point out to me but i you know there's i there, i have no response to questions like that the only response is you can you're not allowed to say it so why are you saying it what do you want me to do congratulate myself on being born in the 80s um <laughs> it's incredible it's it's also the the article um really re- reminded me that like it's just it's just very unchanging i was i was looking at um i was in the archives a little while ago looking at documents for the usaid which is the american um overseas aid and development department and in 1961 they were trying to hire someone to be a company head and they have a file that's that's entitled file of uh, women for hire but lots of the women who have husbands it, it just says next to them oh well you know their husband won't be able to move so there's no point offering them the job and it's right. exactly the same, you know, so we've not moved on in, what, sort of 50 years? It's ridiculous as well, because it's... It, it kind of takes all of the options away. So one of the things that Rivera points out in her article is that they don't... So selection committees actually remove the option. They don't mm-hmm. ask their top candidate then, because they've already decided for her that she's not going to be able to move, so they, they don't want to deal with the rejection yeah. somehow. I don't really understand how that is at all a problem for them, but, you know, may, maybe it takes 
two more hours of yeah. admin time to go for the next one on the list if she says no but there's still you know you are not hiring the best person and the worst thing that that best person can tell you is oh no actually i can't do it but surely you will have thought of that before you apply for a job you would imagine so i mean i remember when i was on when i went on the job market i was told not i mean i'm not married um but i have a long-term partner and, and i was told you know obviously i wouldn't i wouldn't I can't imagine a situation where I would talk about my partner in a job interview. I was told not to wear a wedding ring because the implication being that I, I might not get hired because it would mm. look like I was ready to have a baby. <laughs> and so I might be a liability for... Because academia has quite good maternity leave. Oh, yeah. Um, and so there's always this assumption that we're going to take advantage of this as soon as possible. Yeah, I hear rumours that academia's got good maternity leave policies, but I couldn't access it, despite having worked for, I think, four universities mm. in the 12 months leading up to having a baby. I, was, I wasn't I was eligible for statutory maternity pay anywhere. Um, mm. The plight of a of a younger academic but I just want to add that I actually have to talk about my partner in quite a lot of interviews because this always comes up (laughs) somehow because it's now at the stage where I have to tell people that I have had parental leave because otherwise there's this gap on my CV Mm, of course um and people who finish their PhDs at the time that I finished my PhDs and don't have kids or are men with kids um have been able to publish a lot more than I have and mm-hmm. stuff like that so some I always have to bring up my partner because I often get the kind of questions you're not allowed to guess and my my response is always but she has a dad <laughs> these two kind of competing issues I think that have come up quite a lot recently in in media coverage of women in the workplace and that's kind of emotional labor and emotional labor in the workplace but also this idea of which is quite an old idea now of this sort of lean in feminism in the workplace Mm. and it seems like they're quite connected because one of them is about you know behaving like a man um and putting yourself forwards and if only we all did this then of course we'd get rid of the gender pay gap and we'd get rid of structural inequalities Mm. in employment and you know it's silly women are just holding themselves back by not leaning in aggressively enough and then on the other hand, you have these ideas about emotional labour in the workplace and how that kind of falls to women. Mm. Um, I mean, the lean-in stuff, how do you feel about that? I, I've just... I've kind of ignored quite a lot of it because I just... I, <laughs> <laughs> that does was, seem like a sensible... Maybe we should was, just move on from it at that point. Yeah, I, I, maybe this is what I tend to do, though, that I just don't listen to, to um, advice that I've kind of disqualify from the start I've just never really understood if if the problem was that women don't ask for things then you know that problem could very easily be you know disappeared you could just you know if the if a company could easily solve a gender gap by mm-hmm. just you know preempting the asking then or to tell women to ask for stuff but that doesn't work because well, no, if women, women do ask for stuff, then they're judged more harshly than men anyway, right? Exactly. So women are told, you know, you should ask for pay rises. Men ask for pay rises and they get them. And silly women just don't ask for pay rises. And I think that's my problem with the lean-in feminism stuff. It's that it's, it assumes that the, that the playing field is level yeah, to start absolutely. with. And, and that the, the only thing that's missing is um, assertiveness. Well, it's part of a workplace culture increasingly in Britain, and I think in America and probably in Western Europe as well, about pushing problems in the workplace on... To individuals, mm. right? So, 
there's a gender pay gap because women don't ask for pay rises, which ignores the idea that if we do ask for pay rises, then we're seen as pushy and not giving them anywhere. And also it's an individual problem because individual women take too long at home yeah. with their kids Absolutely. and are then reluctant to return to work full time and stuff, which Absolutely. is also untrue. I mean, recently there was a sort of issue in um, Royal Holloway discovered that its male professors were all paid more than its female professors. There was this sort of enormous gap between male and female professors. And, and one of the reasons that that existed, they discovered, was that men were much more proactive about saying that they had been approached by other employers mm. and kind of trying to leverage better deals out of Royal Holloway. But actually what it turned out is that they often hadn't really been approached. They hadn't been offered jobs. They'd often been sort of told about a vacancy somewhere else. Mm. And so women, typically, if they had been in that position, hadn't bothered, you know, if they'd just turned down even the opportunity of applying for a job, just hadn't bothered taking it back to their existing employer mm. because that's not really an offer. Whereas men were much more proactive in saying, well, I could have been offered this job and so going back. And that, you know, that's not just a simple, oh, you should ask for things. That's yeah. completely reframing your idea about ideas about your own self-worth and things, mm. which is sort of within gender kind of, you know, just in a gendered system. I think this is another area where having grown up in Sweden, which is very uh, unionized and where you don't negotiate individually with your employer, you have mm -hmm. a union who does it for you. You don't really enter those kind of conflicts with your employer. I I definitely had different um, ideas mm. when entering the British labour market. And I managed in my former job to uh, get myself quite a massive um, pay increase by actually saying, do you know what, I'm just going to have to go and find another job. And I don't want to. I want to stay here. But if, if I have to go and find a job mm. offer and then for you to to tell you basically blackmail you into giving me more money then I'll do that and in the end I didn't have to blackmail mm -hmm. the company I just got the money anyway but I, you know I think that's a fairly unusual thing to do and it can backfire and you know and, yeah. there's, and there's lots of there's lots of kind of studies that show that it often does backfire on women mm. and it backfires on women more than men yeah making those kind of demands I had a female boss in this mm -hmm. circumstance which I think helped she was yeah. also a foreigner <laughs> which probably helped as well i mean yeah. the other way the other way that i think increasingly in in british employment spheres what do i mean in jobs british british kind of workplaces there's also this increasing kind of tendency to push um stress and um you know universities all now offer mindfulness classes to their members of staff they all offer yoga which wow. again yeah, which which in a which in a kind of individual way as a way of dealing with stress, I'm sure is absolutely fine. But as a structural approach to a workforce which is overworked and underpaid, yeah, and that's my problem. In the first episode, we talked about uh, our problems with mindfulness, or we mentioned them briefly. No, we did mention we, them really and briefly, said, didn't and we? Said that we would come back to them. I think, and, and this is it. I don't necessarily have a problem with people using mindfulness techniques if they feel, you know, they need to feel calmer about things or happier about things or hmm. accept things but I have a big problem with it being used as some sort of alternative uh, workforce empowerment mm -hmm. scheme yeah you know it's it's removing the responsibility f for mismanaging people's lives and yeah. pushing all of these anxiety and and stresses onto the individual workforce and then turning around I think it's just so it's it's horrible that 
you know, big companies, small companies, anyone can turn around and say, no, actually the problem is with you. You need to manage your stress. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When in, I would say nine out of 10 cases for anecdotal evidence, it would be um, the actual job of a manager in yeah. a workplace to remove those stresses. Well, you know, mindfulness increasingly in universities, you know, mindfulness is, is offered in place of staff support for mental health. Mm. So, you know, lots of universities, because universities are cutting budgets and because they have ever-increasing student populations, which mm. means you have to put more money into, quite rightly, you know, put more money into offering mental health support for students, often staff um, are kind of left out of that and then told that they should pursue mindfulness as Mm. a technique to manage things you know and it doesn't this is without even getting into the fact that mindfulness actually for people who do have mental health problems for people who suffer particularly from anxiety disorders mindfulness can be really unhelpful actually Mm. things which focus you for things which ask you for example to focus on your breathing Mm. can be a bit problematic if you have a tendency to hyperventilate (laughs) for example Yes. You know, and it and it's sort of all part of a culture. You know, we talked about this a bit in when we talked about the This Girl Can campaign a couple of episodes ago and we talked about this kind of culture of health and pr- pushing the idea that the ideal kind of in that case the ideal kind of woman has this sort of healthy well-being focus mm. and it's it's sort of the same. I don't have a problem with people doing it individually or finding it helpful, but I really have a problem with with employers using it. Yes. And as a sort of solution to all ills, mm-hmm. when it really isn't. And I think that kind of comes into, in the last few weeks, there's been a lot of discussion about sexual harassment in the workforce, mm-hmm. in the workplace, or just sexual harassment in general. This is all after um, Weinstein, Weinstein and yep. the Me Too. And it's, I think it's the same issues there, is that you become this isolated member of a greater bigger group in which Mm -hmm. you are told not to talk about things or you feel like you can't talk about things um which mindfulness as a solution to bigger problems i mean i forgive me for being very left-wing but isn't unionization in the workplace (laughs) a greater solution are you swedish radical yes uh a greater solution to to structural injustices in the workplace than than mindfulness apps i have a point i have a, a marge piercy in the men's rooms which is really good what it says it starts when i was young i believed in intellectual conversation it's a poem about wanting to be a woman in men, men's spaces and mm. gradually realizing or she gradually realizes that men don't take her seriously mm. that they see her as a woman offering herself up yeah. to them and so she ends up in the kitchen talking about i think she ends up in the kitchen with the women she says um which i like she talks i go out to the kitchen to talk cabbages and habits <laughs> um but this idea that yeah that men just thought she was offering up her breasts and thighs she says and she thought they were she was their equal but she wasn't yeah which i think maybe actually the last few weeks i think some women have been thinking along yeah. similar lines like thinking back at times that you thought maybe you were equal and actually you weren't maybe yeah um yeah it's it's upsetting it's um i also feel a bit extra for people who are um actually suffering from um the traumatic implications of Mm. having been in situations and it's now inescapable absolutely um as as good as it is that people are talking about it but yeah yeah, no me too i'm reluctant i'm reluctant to join in for that reason um but 
I'm, I'm very pleased that the stories that people are telling that they find an outlet for them yes and also I hope that it starts to make some people particularly maybe non-women realize just how common it is yeah absolutely and to keep an impetus yeah that, that's what's important I think this sort of sense of an impetus to do something to change something you know and it's not just sort of a lip service I mean you know all of these stories came out when when the Trump locker room comments yeah. were published yeah and women did the same thing and they shared their stories about being sexually assaulted and then Trump was elected president so I'm not super optimistic it's about maybe there not being a, a big revolution we're witnessing yeah yeah um if we are sort of towards the end of this episode now, so we should mm. probably do our recommendations. Our recommendations, yes. So we d- are doing TV programmes today. Yes. What are you recommending? It's that point in the semester where I am unable to recommend anything other than television. So I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's week five at Southampton and I am so tired. Um, I have two recommendations which are both trash. Excellent. So the first is Gossip Girl. Oh. And the second... And, and, if, and Gossip Girl in conjunction with the... Um, the recaps of Gossip Girl that were available on Vulture. Oh, yeah. Which make it... I just... I love watching a television show with a recap. Mm. Um, and so when I rewatched Mad Men recently, I read all of the recaps yeah. um, on The Guardian every time I watched an episode. And I just... I enjoy that element of it. So Gossip Girl, which I'm really, really enjoying, even though it goes against all of my politics. <laughs> it's just... I love it so much. And I spend a lot of time now spamming my Twitter thread with gifts from Gossip Girl. It's um, excellent. And my slightly less trashy but still trashy TV recommendation is My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Which is also... Which is slightly less terrible, if only because it's... It's a bit more cerebral, isn't and it? It's a bit more knowing, isn't it? But it's yeah. still essentially... I mean, I mean, all television is basically... Po- I mean, all everything is basically pointless, but, you know... <laughs> but I think it's really good. I There's someone at Queen Mary, and I can't remember who it is, but Queen Mary, the university I tend to work for the most, um, who reads really horrifically badly written novels as a uh, kind of relaxation method, mm-hmm. as a term gets going. And I can't remember who it is. If someone hears this and recognises themselves... Oh, yeah, let us know. Do let us know. Um and my response to that is always watching horrific amounts of poor TV. I watch EastEnders quite regularly. I'm not going to recommend EastEnders, don't get me wrong. But it's, it's such a great thing to just sit down and like not think about something for a while. Mm-hmm. But my actual recommendation is the Norwegian TV series Scam, <laughs> which is available <laughs> through various illegal means with English subtitles. Mm-hmm. Um Famously, the first episode includes uh, the subtitle Cries in Norwegian, which is a, <laughs> <laughs> one very good reason to watch it. It's actually a very good show. I take What's it that about? What's the kind it's, of... it's a group of, of Norwegian kids who start school, so okay. they're about 16. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of upper secondary type of school, okay. and it's like their life dramas, and it, scam means shame. Like a Norwegian skins? Yeah, yeah. Okay less outrageous though I think okay. but but much better this last two seasons in particular are you know absolutely brilliant um but I always say that watching scam and teaching undergrads mm-hmm. give me so much hope for the future because people who are born in the 90s mm-hmm. just seem to be the best they have it they are very together they are very together they're also very compassionate mm-hmm. and have seemed to have a lot of empathy and understanding for yes. the weaknesses of human beings. So that is my on a excellent on a 
slightly depressing uh, podcast topic That's a ending on a good note. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you have recommendations for more trashy yet uplifting television, then please do let us know. Yes. Tweet us. We're, the term is only going to get more tiring from this point onwards. So yes. More television And we're available everywhere. So we are uh, both everywhere. on Twitter as, as our own individual people, but also TD... TNK pod. TNK pod. One day I'm going to let TNK pod. I set it up. How can I not know? Um, and we're on Facebook. Yeah. And we have an email account. And you can obviously download this. I mean, you're listening to it now, but you can get us from all good podcasts. Yeah, um, anywhere you can get a podcast, anywhere. you can get us. And you can also review us if you like us and want other people to know about us. Yes. Um, particularly on iTunes, that's a good thing to do. But uh, next time we're also going to be talking about work, but we're going to move more into the domestic and emotional side of things. So stay tuned. Bye. Bye.